National League Championship. They have beaten the Padres 4-3, and they celebrate on their home turf as the Phillies of the 2022 NL Champs. From WHYY, Billy Penn, it is hidden season and it is red October season right now. Hey there, podcast pals. I'm John Stolness from The Good Fight and Billy Penn. You can follow me on Twitter, X at John Stolness. Coming up, it's our Phillies preview for the playoffs. We know who our opponent is going to be, but we're also going to take a look back at the season that was here in 2023. Most memorable moment from 2023. I want to talk about that a little bit because there were so many this year. Uh, but we also want to take a deep dive into I think a team that is kind of surprising that we're going to be facing in the wild card round, and that's the Miami Marlins. It's not going to be the Cubs. It's not going to be the Diamondbacks, as a lot of us were thinking. Instead, the Fish will be visiting Citizens Bank Park starting on Tuesday night. Also, a couple of eyebrow-raising managerial changes that we'll get into at the end of the podcast. So lots to get to here on this episode. Joining me is my good buddy Justin Clue from Baseball Prospectus and uh, the Dirty Inning and Absolutely Hammered over on our Patreon. Follow him on Twitter at Justin underscore Clue, as well as Liz Rocher from Yahoo Sports. Follow her on Twitter at Liz Rocher. Liz, how you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling good. I can't believe the regular season's over. It feels like it passed in a flash. It did, Justin. How are you doing, buddy? We did it! It took a lot of <laughs> doubting and whining and complaining and genuinely hating and retracting and enjoying and loving and collapsing and despising and frustrating and sighing and kicking and slapping and trading and acquiring and homering and considering and maddening and disheartening and c- cursing and falling down and breaking and sucking and restoring and delighting and adoring and applauding and more than anything else, never, ever learning. But we did it. We got the Phillies into the postseason. Good for us. It well was done. on us. It was on us. It's unfair that the Phillies players left it on us to do it for them, but here we are. We've do, we've done it. We've gotten them there for the second year in a row. Uh, this year's Phillies team finishes with 90 victories, which is a nice round number. I'm glad they were able to win this season finale uh, against the Mets in a very convincing fashion, a fun game overall uh, to finish up after a pretty dreadful doubleheader on Saturday. And we don't really need to get into these games because really the Phillies in these last few games are just trying to keep everybody healthy, get some guys way far down on the roster, a little bit more playing time, just in case their number is called here in October at some point. But the Phillies get to 90 wins thanks to this uh, season-ending win on Sunday, and it's the first time they've gotten to 90 wins since 2011, of course. And before we look ahead, because we do want to get into this series about the Marlins and talk about the Fish and how scary of an opponent we think they are or they may not be, let's look back on, on this season real quick. And just so everybody's kind of tracking where this season went, they were 25-32, and 32, as we all will remember, through the first uh, 57 games of the season. And since that time, went 65-40, and 40, 25 games over 500 the rest of the way. And that's very similar to what happened last year. These, these seasons were very, very similar to each other. The Phillies 21-29 and 29 through 50 games last year. Then, then they went 66-46 and 46 the rest of the way. So... Uh, history repeats itself. We, we hear that all the time, and that was certainly the case with the Phillies here in 2023. And Justin, there were so many memorable moments from this season. Is there one that sticks out in particular that as you look back on, on the 2023 regular season, I mean, we're hoping we'll get more red October moments like we got uh, that'll supersede everything we saw in the regular season. What stands out to you most from 2023? Well, it's a lot of good stuff. It's tough to remember. We are, we are, of course, at the part of the regular season where you think, what happened again? Which season was this year? And, <laughs> and what exactly went down? Uh, but here we are. And there are, you know, it's, it's worth going back and reminding yourself of everything that got us to this point. And part of that was was uh, this team's new reputation, essentially, is that after two seasons, we know this team is a team of slow starters and hard finishers. And that slow start is what I think gets a lot of people really worked up at the beginning of the season. We were certainly worked up. Uh, so, you know, starting the season one and five was definitely, you know, that, that, that was the beginning of them putting themselves in a hole that didn't necessarily lead to the postseason. So moments like on April 8th, 
when Bryson Stott walked it off against the Reds as part of his 17-game hitting streak to start mm. the season. That's what I wanted to jump on that because Stott kind of he did he did eventually cool off in the in the second half, but it felt like it took a while for people to really start you know the whole um, I'm concerned about Stott you know whispers getting started. So he he uh, he's had a great year. I think everybody would say generally he took a step forward again. Uh, he is somebody I think that's going to be a part of the Phillies for the future. They have said as much and just like a big win like that on April 8th after such a demoralizing start was, uh, was huge for this team. Like those are the, you're, you're kind of waiting for that first win when the season starts, that is like your a signature win or just a big win or the win that, you know, is going to lead off the highlights that night for your team, because that kind of, that's, that's sort of, you're like, okay, now we're back before we were yeah. just playing ball. Now yeah. we're back. And that was the Phillies. Now we're back moment. And it just took so long to get here that it, it just seemed like a really important milestone for the season. And I just want to throw in as a, as a caveat to that, the May 14th brawl with the Rockies <laughs> is also a big highlight for me because it's just hilarious to think of Jake Bird and the Rockies being the team that really got the Phillies goat when you consider all the teams that are in the playoffs picture with uh, with, a, with three wildcard spots and the Rockies being the team the Phillies feuded with most aggressively and physically this year because Jake Bird was like, nah, 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 and that was like enough to get this team uh, off the bench. So those were two moments that popped into my mind when this question came up. Yeah, I like that you threw a couple of things in there that maybe folks wouldn't necessarily be thinking of. And I remember at the beginning of the season when they were starting off 25 and 32, we kept saying over and over again, look, I mean, yes, in 2022, they started off slow and then they caught fire. And But you, you can't expect them to do that every year. Like, that's an unrealistic expectation. There's a danger there in starting off slow and thinking you could just you can just flip a switch once the, once June rolls around and, and go on a run again and exactly what they did they, they flipped a switch in june and went on a run again and then in august uh had a ridiculous month in august and uh went on a run and played really well in september i will say you know they actually they had a very they had a normal september like they weren't awesome in september they weren't bad in september they they did they won a bunch of really close games down the stretch they had a seven game winning streak in september when is when has that ever happened uh it's in order to to lock up that playoff berth and uh yeah it was just a it was a it was a really uh, fun season um not from start to finish really from from June to finish with some uncomfortableness in, in, in between there. Liz, big takeaways from twenty from the 2023 regular season for you. Any any favorite moments or, or big takeaways for you? Well, I think every, a lot of people's favorite moment is the is the Trey Turner moment. And of course, when someone says, what is your favorite moment? It's definitely, it's definitely that. That, you know, even in all of the debate around it, I feel like we grew as a city, didn't we? As we all so. got through that, we all grew. A I mean, we bit. certainly still are a city, which I think yeah. is also progress from where things were back in April. Yeah, completely true. Honestly, anytime, anytime that we as sports fans get over any type of strife within our city, it is a miracle that it remains standing. Uh, but yeah, no it, doubt it's about it. This, this team is just a good lesson in that balance is overrated. You can just, you know, play however you want for the first few months of the season and then just jam all your wins and home runs into a single six-week window <laughs> and things can totally work out fine. It's like drafting Christian McCaffrey. Who cares if you're throwing up zeros elsewhere? He's going to give you 41 points. So you're set. Don't worry about it. Put it all in one basket as the saying goes. And just uh, interesting that, you know, as I was looking back through the different highlights of, of 2023, I had forgotten totally that JT Rail Muto hit the team's first cycle since David Bell in, in 2004. Totally forgot yeah. about that moment. Did um, he do that against the Reds? Marlins. Oh, I was going to say, I, I thought he did it against because David Bell would have been there, but I guess they would have made a bigger deal out of that. Yes, yes. No, he did that against the Marlins. Um, I think it was in that series in Miami around uh, around right when they won. They won three out of four right before the Trey Turner uh, uh, series, where where the guy gave him the standing ovation against the Royals. And I think the Turner moment is the one that most people will reference, Liz, when you ask him what was the most memorable mm -hmm. moment of 2023. For me, I think it's it's a night that night Michael Lorenzen threw the no hitter, and Weston yeah. Wilson hit the home run, and everybody in the stands was crying just because of all these emotional moments that happened over and over again. And, you know, you forgot about Nick Castellanos's two home run game that got him to 200 and all that. But, you know, and there, there's that to me was one of the best nights of regular season baseball I've ever seen. Just yeah. because of the, the history made, but the emotion involved. And there were more there were a lot of moments like that where it just seemed like this is more than just about baseball. 
this game, this night, this this moment, uh, whatever it is we were dealing with, with with the Phillies this year, like there was there are a few moments like that where you just kind of felt like this is special. The Trey Turner moment was was something like that. Like this is these are not moments you normally see, you know. And and it was the, 2023 had a number of them, especially late late in the season. It yeah, felt I gotta like say, from June to the end of the season, that we lived like two baseball seasons worth of events. Like, I feel like I've forgotten more about this season than I've known about the past 10 years of the Phillies. Like, it, it does feel like we've lived through a lot with the season since June when they started being interesting. I got to say that uh, the parents in the stands moments this year were absolute highlights. You mentioned yeah. Weston Wilson, but we also got Craig Kimbrell's dad there for his, yeah. uh, what was it, his, his four... 300th save, I think 300, it was. 300 save. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was there, and uh, Orion Kirkering's dad and family uh, that were there when he made his debut. I mean, like, these were, they were, they were terrific moments. They really were. They were, it was, uh, it, 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 it gave you that, like, beyond baseball feeling. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. Um, but yeah, there, there were definitely, yeah, you guys mentioned the cycle, which again, I had, I had to go back and was like, oh yeah, that's right. That is, you know, a cycle is a cycle, but it's still, you know, it's still a moment. It's still a highlight right. for the season. But just <clears throat> since you guys both mentioned it, I will say like the Trey Turner ovation thing is a, is a highlight. And in time, all of the stuff around it will be forgotten and just kind of melt away all the little commentaries about it and opinions in and outside of the city about <laughs> what if we're what if we're soft now what if we aren't respected by all the street toughs and nobody thinks philadelphia is like hardcore anymore it's like well i'm willing to risk that i guess i'm willing to take <laughs> i'm willing to take that risk that what if people don't think robots get torn apart in philadelphia anymore because we clapped for a guy on the baseball team <laughs> try so us. i'm glad that we were able to just yeah. get by all that and just to do and create this moment which you know the fact that it worked was as surprising to me as anybody but uh i i really i love that when, when, a, when a player kind of directly addresses that relationship with the city and that he came out and like thanked everybody afterwards and put the billboard up. I mean, that was certainly that, that had to have been, if you're looking for like turning point moments, similar to what we had last year where Girardi got fired and suddenly the team started playing better. This has to be one of them. It, it qualifies in the exact same way. A guy was struggling. People did something uh, there. The changes were jarringly uh, immediate and Ken Rosenthal said it wouldn't work. Here we are, <laughs> like it's the exact, exact same situation, and here we are again. It totally worked. So yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's 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 going to be worth remembering. None of the surrounding commentary will be. A couple other notes from the 2023 season. Um, Alec Bohm hit his 20th home run of the season on Sunday, and after going through again like the first three months of the season with home runs being such a scarcity. The Phillies finished the season for the first time with six players with 20 or more home runs. You had Alec Bohm and JT Real Muto with 20, Harper with 21, Trey Turner with 26, Castellanos with 29, and Kyle Schorber, of course, lapping the field with 47 home runs this season. Uh, Trey Turner finished, became the first player in MLB history to steal 30 bases or more without being caught. He was 30 for 30 in stolen bases this season. So just um, kind of a crazy season for, for Trey Turner overall. He came within four home runs of a 30-30 season after after all of that. So um, yeah, just a, a very, it's a fascinating season and we'll have more time to kind of look at it as, as the days go by. But um, now we're looking forward. We're looking to the playoffs and the postseason rosters have been set looking in the national league. Uh, the Atlanta Braves, of course, are the one seed. The Dodgers are the two seed. Uh, they get a buy through the wild card round. And uh, in the one wild card series, three versus six, you'll have the Brewers hosting the Arizona Diamondbacks. And then of course, your Philadelphia Phillies will get the Miami Marlins. And again, I don't think when we were talking a couple of weeks ago and we were looking at the Diamondbacks, the Reds, the Cubs, um, I guess the Giants, I guess we're still technically a, a part of things. But we were looking at like which teams would be the scariest, which teams would we least want to face. And for me, it was the Marlins. This is the team I didn't want to face. And um, there, there are a couple of reasons why. It's not necessarily the fact that the Phillies lost the season series against them. They went six and seven against the Marlins here in 2023. But the Phillies actually outscored the Marlins by nine runs uh, in that in those 13 games. So the, the run differential doesn't match the record at all. The Phillies did take three of four from them in a Miami series over the summer. Uh, but the last time these two teams played, 
Miami came into Philadelphia and won two out of three just a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, all three games will start at 8 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, games one, two, and three. Uh, And uh, we now know who it's going to be. And so, guess, Liz, my first question is, what do you think about the Marlins? Is this uh, is this the team that scares you? On what level are you? Do you can are you concerned about the Marlins? I mean, we're concerned about any team that's gonna you're gonna play in a playoff series. How are you feeling about the fact that it's the Marlins who we're gonna get in the wild card round? I'm feeling I'm feeling very bullish. Honestly, there isn't a team I'd be scared of right now. I like how the Phillies have been trending lately. They all seem very confident. Everyone has been resting well, as evidenced by some of the results we've seen lately. You know, I I feel I feel good. Like they've never there isn't a lot of playoff experience among them, and none of them have been to Citizens Bank Park for a playoff game. I dare them to come in to Citizens Bank Park and not be affected by that. Like I'm I, that's why I'm not scared. Like I I'd like to see them get through it before I before I admit to any fear. I think that's a fair point. I mean, it is, what do they call it, four hours of hell last year, Justin, when teams would come into Citizens Bank Park. Like, they just didn't want any part of it and until the Astros figured out a way to win games four and five at Citizens Bank Park. Nobody could win. Nobody could win in Philadelphia. And for a team with no playoff experience whatsoever, um... It's going to be a tall task for Miami, and, and the Phillies have to be heavy favorites. That being said, what's your what's your level of concern about it being the Marlins over, let's say, the Diamondbacks? So it was it was looking like it was going to be Arizona. Yeah, you know, I'm just looking back on this season series. I think a lot of people are going to make some noise over the fact that the Phillies, you know, were six and seven against the Marlins, but losing the season series and being six and seven against a team, yeah, technically they're the same thing. But, you know, there's some nuance there. Like, when, like, the Phillies did lose to the Marlins 15 to 3 back in April. Or, no, the Marlins, the Phillies beat the Marlins 15 to 3 back in April. But they did play a lot of games that were determined by, like, 1 to 3 runs. Uh, Like, including some of the ones the Phillies lost that if they, you know, had managed to score another run here or a hit shoots through there or a pitcher can go another inning here, you know, all the all the different struggles the Phillies were dealing with this year at different times reared their heads as they played the Marlins throughout the year in April, July, and then August. So, like, and, and September. So, like, I think they saw different versions of the Phillies through different parts of the year because, as we know, this team has redefined itself three, four times over the course of the regular season. Uh, and so I, I think that you you would look at the, the the you could go back and look at the box box scores of the games the Phillies lost and see some really close games that easily could have been wins. You know I'm not saying they were wins. I'm not trying to rewrite history here. The Phillies did lose seven out of thirteen games against the Marlins, but at the same time there were some games that were definitely winnable. And we know this team is capable of losing winnable games, but when they are the strongest version of themselves, which I think they're very close to right now, and some rest is going to be good for them, uh, and having their, um, I, I think Bohm hitting his 20th home run was big for this team, and for Bohm specifically. Like I, I feel like they are they are in a, the right place to take on the Marlins again, because the Marlins probably don't have an exact idea of which version of this team they're going to be facing. Like the, the Phillies have have had different strengths throughout the year, and they've managed to play the Marlins close in just about every game they've played against each other. So I, mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is not necessarily I, like like Liz. I don't think there was a particularly threatening team to the Phillies in this wild card mess, or, or at least one that I felt I was too intimidated by. Uh, and the Marlins are just one of those teams, you know, another beatable team. The Phillies could have beaten more times than they did. Yeah, and I think. One of the things that I've been reading a lot about with with the Phil- with the Marlins specifically is that they're not afraid of the Phillies. And just like the Phillies are not afraid of the Braves in a playoff series, the Marlins are not afraid of the Phillies. And you know, whether that's that might be true for the regular season, like we've been saying, but it's it is a it is a different animal coming into Philadelphia for a playoff game. And so um really the Marlins have to rely on their voodoo magic that allowed them to go 33 and 13 in one run games this year, which 
I, it, 20 games <laughs> wow. over 500 in one-run games is astonishing. The Marlins actually were 31-37 and 37 in the second half of the season. They were six games under 500 in the second half. So I, they don't exactly come rolling into the playoffs, although they did go 17-9 and nine in September. So I take that back. They had a lousy July. They had a lousy August. But they rallied in September, going 17 and nine. And this team does have some, uh, some, some really good players. Um, they picked up some really good pieces at the trade deadline. Uh, Jake Berger is a guy who has been hitting really well since they picked him up. But they do have a big question mark in Luis Arias, their all-world hitter, who has only played one of the last seven games with an ankle injury, and his his status to start the wild card series healthy is in question. And so that would be obviously be a huge blow. The team's OPS leader and one of only two players with an OPS over 500 over, pardon me, over 800. Uh, Jorge, Jorge Soler is the other one. They only have one player who hit 20 or more home runs this year. And that is Soler with 36. Brian De La Cruz and Jazz Chisholm each hit 19. Although again, Chisholm only played 97 games this year. So Gene Segura still a member is Gene. Yeah. Gene Segura is still on the Marlins. Did they, did they cut Gene Segura? They cut I'm him. trying to remember. They cut him. That's right. Yeah. Cause he's still on the baseball reference page, but I'm looking at it. I was like, no, they cut that guy. Cause he, Gene was so bad. Um, Really what this is going to come down to, as far as I'm concerned, is their ability to get to the left-handed starters that they're going to throw at them. Now, Sandy Alcantara is not going to pitch in this series, which is good news for the Phillies, but they have to face Jesus Luzardo in Game 1 and Braxton Garrett in Game 2. Again, both left-handed starters. Luzardo went 10-9 on the season with a 3.63 ERA in 32 starts. Garrett went 9-7 with a 3.66 ERA in 30 starts, 31 games overall. Uh, Edward Cabrera probably gets Game 3 if it comes to that, but uh, their best relievers, Andrew Nardi, Stephen Okert, Tanner Scott, A.J. Puck, all left-handed, and so when you've when your best players are Bryce Harper and Kyle Schwarber and you've got Bryson Stott, um, you know, those are, who am I forgetting? Schwarber, Stott, uh, Harper, who else? Marsh, um, who, and that's going to be another question. I'm going to get to Marsh in a second, but it's really going to be important as far as I can tell, guys, that the right-handed hitters, Alec Bohm, Trey Turner, Nick Castellanos, JT Realmuto, these guys are going to be the keys to the series. Can the right-handers get to Jesus Lazardo or Braxton Garrett in games one and two. Whereas if they had been facing the Diamondbacks, the Diamondbacks would likely have had to throw a bullpen game in game one and then go Zach Gallen in game two. And then if the, if the Diamondbacks had managed to win one of those two games, then they could get to Merrill Kelly in game three. So the way it kind of shakes out, the Phillies could, it would have been probably more advantageous for them to face the Diamondbacks as far as starting pitching is concerned. But when you look at the Diamondbacks, that is a really those are two really good pitchers and Gallon and Kelly, and they have a much better offense than Miami. So would you have rather, would Miami, would have, would Arizona have been a better matchup for the Phillies than Miami, Justin, or do you like this the way it worked out? I think I like it the way it worked out. I mean, in a, in a three game series, I think a lot of the focus is going to be on the pitching and uh, in the Phillies case, it's kind of like what you see is what you get at, at uh, in regards to certain aspects of it. Uh, but I was one of the two things I got right going into this. Po- well, maybe not right, but close to right about coming into this uh, MLB season. One was the Mets not making the playoffs. And the other one was Zach Gallen was my NL Cy Young pick. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen, but he's certainly made himself a part of the conversation. And he's a pitcher you don't especially want to face. So I'm glad that uh, the Phillies won't have to face the Diamondbacks uh, pitching situation. The the Marlins, uh, I think, are just a team most people are unintimidated by, just given their lack of recent success and the fact that guys like Jorge Soler, which are part of the backbone of their offense, were greatly overperforming this year. There is an aspect to the Marlins' success this year that's a surprise even to the Marlins. So I, I'm not I'm not as alarmed about having to face them, and I don't think you have to be afraid of a team in order to lose to them either. So when you say things like, well, the Marlins aren't afraid of the Phillies, okay, there's they're still probably going to, I think, going to lose to them. Like, you don't have to be teeth chattering coming into Citizens Bank Park and uh, fearing fearing for your life to, 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 to lose to a team that's just up and down better. And I think the Phillies have more depth. I think the Phillies have more of their uh, more of their starters and best weapons being they're, they're actually going to be on the field. So I think the best version of the Marlins is a version that's not going to exist in this three-game series. Liz, what do you think? 
Yeah, I I completely agree with Justin. Like I I'm not scared of the Diamondbacks, but I'm fine with it working out this way. Either you know, either way, I would have been happy because they're plus and minuses. You know, the Marlins, it feels more significant because the Phillies have had problems with them over the years for for many years for no discern- discernible reason. They just yeah. lose to them for they're they they've been awful, and the Phillies have not been even just slightly better than them, and they just can't. They're more than half the time they can't pull out a win, so it feels like this is significant, but. The Phillies aren't that team anymore, and I feel like a there's a, a flip that a switch that flips in the playoffs for this team, and we saw it last year. You know, this is they are laser focused. <clears throat> they are they're absolutely it, in it, and I'm I'm ready to see them really take on the Marlins. This this Phillies, you know, the playoff Phillies take on the Marlins and really beat them within an inch of their lives. And in regards to the pitching of a three-game series, not having to face Sandy Alcantara even after a rough season is huge. And Luis Arise's presence being in question is also huge. That's huge, yes. yes. Yes, if he's not able to play, that's a huge loss for Miami. And you don't. And wish if he is playing on, him, but... on a bulky ankle, that's also huge too. I mean, this is yeah. a guy that gave everybody fits. I don't know what the opposite of an automatic out is, but that was pretty much a rise all season long. Not having to face him in a short set like this would be a huge deal, and having to face a, a, uh, a turned-down version of him is also beneficial to the Phillies. Uh, and the Phillies have everything set up as far as the way they want their pitching to go. Zach Wheeler will start game one. Aaron Nola will start game two. And then the Phillies will likely go with an all-hands-on-deck mentality in game three. Probably Ranger Suarez comes out of the uh, comes out of the gates in, in game three. And maybe he gets the lineup twice through the, through the order, depending on how he does the first time through. Um, unless they need to use Ranger Suarez in a game in games one or two. But they have so many options in the bullpen. I don't know why they would use Ranger Suarez out of the bullpen. But um, stranger things have happened, of course. Uh, in the playoffs, the extra inning rules go back to the way they used to be. So you could have longer games in the playoffs. You could have games go 15, 16 innings, and then all bets are off in the in that case but the Phillies are healthier in terms of pitching really than any team has a right to be at this time of year they have everybody that they came into the season with and Aaron Nola I think is the most important player on this team uh from here on out I mean he's he we forget in that Cardinal series last year that Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola owning the Cardinals is what got them past the wild card round. The offense was not good in that Cardinals series until, you know, the Cardinals really gave, handed them some runs in that ninth inning. Gene Segura's nice hit aside. So they really, Aaron Nola as a game two starter could make, could make all the difference in the world. And he's thankfully had his best two outings of the season coming into the playoffs here. And they've given him more time off. They skipped his turn in the rotation. He always pitches better with more rest as opposed to Zach Wheeler, who needs to be on regular rest. And that's what that's how it's all lined up to be. But do you guys agree with me that Aaron Nola is the most important player on this team here in the playoffs? Or, or is there somebody else who you think might be more important than Aaron Nola? I think there's a couple of people you could make an argument for, but I think the reason we zero in on Nola is because when he, he he made himself good enough years ago to be a central part of this team's success in the long and the short run. Uh, so when you look at a kind of season he had this year, which was just aggressively up and down, uh, and, and you know, one second you're thinking maybe he's back, and the next second it's like this guy may never pitch again, and then the next second it's like, well, I hope free agency works out for him, and then you're thinking, well, I hope it doesn't actually, and then you're thinking, why would you let this guy go? We need him at the top of the rotation. So I think he becomes important because he's a guy you don't know what you're going to get from in a very, very important spot, uh, especially in a three-game set. Like you said, last year, Wheeler and Nola were huge, huge parts of the Phillies winning that first playoff series, which until the ninth inning of game one wasn't trending in that particular direction. Uh, and, and Nola in particular, I think, got brought up a lot, I think, last year in the national broadcasts where like you were hearing 
outside parties talking about what the view of the Phillies was for, for the first time in October in a long time. And all they seemed to focus on was Wheeler and Nola. Wheeler and Nola. Two guys at the head of this rotation. It's a huge advantage for the Phillies. It's a huge strength of the Phillies, especially in a short series. And the same is true this year, except you've had a lot more wobbly of an Aaron Nola. And that does make him more important because the Phillies are, you know, Rob Thompson never wavered. I asked him a couple of weeks ago, what's your playoff rotation? And he said, Nola starts game two. So this is, this is the guy and you don't know exactly what to expect from him. You're encouraged by his final two starts of the season, looking more like Aaron Nola appropriate starts. Uh, the kind of starts you want to see him make in the postseason. But you still, you, he's going to start this game and everybody's going to be on their nerves from the first pitch because this is this is a guy who has not really solidified himself as anything in particular this year other than inconsistent. So that does make him important. Him pitching a good game is a huge asset for the Phillies and they're just, they, they can't waste it. Yeah, I would say more than a huge asset, Liz. It's a, it's a necessity. Like they, they need him to pitch a good game in game two of whatever series they play or whenever he's taking the mound. And he was very good in the wild card round and the divisional round last year and then stumbled in the championship series and the World Series. And that's kind of what we've seen from Arenola over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, they have to have, they have to have game two. Like, especially if they end up winning game one, that's like, you can't, you don't want to split those first two games. Like, you need him to lock it. You need to, he, you need Aaron Nola to lock that down and get the win so they don't have to go to a game three and it doesn't feel like, oh no, Aaron Nola has screwed up and now this is the this is the primary um, narrative of the playoffs because then if they make it through, then the next time that Aaron Nola comes up in the, uh, in the rotation, it's, oh God, Aaron Nola, will we see bad Aaron Nola again? And I feel like that builds on itself in the media and among fans, but it also builds, you know, to Aaron Nola. I mean, it builds on him as much as he does mm-hmm. not wants to say that he doesn't hear it. He definitely does. So, oh yeah, yeah, they definitely have to have whatever game he pitches first. Any game that he pitches, they have to have because not only do we not know what we're going to get from him after him, as much as we trust the guy, everyone there, we don't know what we might get sometimes especially if they're just gonna be in there for a little bit like if it goes wrong then everything after you know whatever bullpen guy accidentally allowed two runs like it can it's a domino effect sometimes and so like having Aaron Nola be strong at the start is like is so vital and if they're saying all hands on deck for game three like it's Ranger Suarez and then whatever we need to do to get it done then you don't want to blast through all those guys in a Aaron Nola, yes. an unideal Aaron Nola start, which makes his start even more important. Mm-hmm. That's very true. And thankfully, the Phillies have, in a three-game series like this, and they have 13 pitchers at their disposal, they really do have enough arms that they, even if even if Nola does have an implosion, and I think Nola needs to be on a really short leash, as well as he's pitched, I don't think we're in a situation where you can see if Nola can work through it. You know, I don't I don't think I don't think we can do that. You can do you need to do that in July and August when you cannot have all of your relief pitchers giving you five, six innings every Nola start. You can't you can't have a quick hook on him. But I'm fine with giving him a little bit of rope to work through some things, but those those blow up innings from Aranola come quickly. And Rob Thompson is going to have to be with his hand near the phone as soon as something happens with Aaron Nola. You know, leadoff walk, first two guys get on base. He's got to have somebody up and warming and who can get in there within within the next batter. I mean, you might even be telling somebody in the fourth inning, look, here, here's what we're going to do. If Aaron, if Aaron Nola, you know, walk gets the leadoff guy comes on, get so-and-so warming up. And it might be Chris Sanchez. And that's the beautiful thing about a three-game series is Chris Sanchez is your number five starter. You need him every fifth day during the regular season. Here, maybe he starts one game. Maybe he starts two games, but it wouldn't be till the League Championship Series or the World Series. You can use him as a super long man out of the bullpen. You you could use Michael Lorenzen in that way. That's why they got him, but I don't think they trust Michael Lorenzen in that role. And I don't really trust Taiwan Walker in that role right now, you know? So there's a couple guys I'd stay away from, but other than that, 
you can have some guys who are in different roles, like Ranger Suarez, like Christopher Sanchez, and I would say maybe even like Taiwan Walker, in different roles to be able to do different things and give you more innings. And, and that's what you're looking at because in a game three of a wild card series or game five of a division series, game seven of the last two series, they're do or die. They're, they You have to win those games. You got to do whatever you got to do to do it to win those games. And then anything after that, it, it doesn't really matter. So um, I don't think you have to worry about Topper giving Nola a rope like he is going to do it. You don't have to. That is that is one thing you can. He is going to make you a little more uncomfortable, I think, even in the postseason uh, than you want to be about an Aaron Nola start. And it's going to be, like you said, in the fourth or fifth inning. And I've just I'm reminded of these these times we've gotten to the fourth or fifth inning. And it feels like a struggle every time with Aaron Nola. It's not always the fourth or fifth inning, but like that's typically when it feels like it is. But there's always, as we all know, that one inning. And we've seen a couple of times, I think, in these last two starts, he's still had that inning. He's just fought through it, and he comes out of it, and you're looking around, and you're like, oh, only one run got oh, through fine. that inning. And then, <laughs> and then he, and then he like settles back in. It's literally like a one inning bout of madness. That like comes and, he, and if he can fight through it and he has, it's just like, okay, one run comes across or he loads the bases and gets out of it. Like he comes right up to the edge. It's like, no, no, no. Or somebody makes a great defensive sp- stop, which is also, this team is also capable of that of backing their pitcher up. Like just stuff like that. It's typically after the Phillies have scored themselves. So, you know, we all know when to expect it just about, but there have been times where he's had that inning and he's been in the middle of one of those innings and he's actually fought the dragon and won. So that is also like it's really going to come down to that that moment. I think when in game two, when that fourth or fifth inning rolls around, I think you're going to see a lot of work productivity. Well, I guess it'll be an eight o'clock game. Never mind. So I think you're going to see a lot of <laughs> drinks going to mouths slow down as yeah. everyone just kind of grips the edge of the table and waits to see what happens next. Last thing on this series for now, and and we're gonna you know do recaps after every game. Uh, I will do them, and and you know we'll we'll see how these all work out uh, with podcasts and stuff like that. But um, we'll be breaking down each one of these uh, playoff games. But um, I think it's interesting reading Corey Seidman's story for NBC Sports Philadelphia after the game here on Sunday, talking about the fact that there are so many left-handers in the Marlins pitching staff that the roster is going to look different than I think we were expecting it to look. You're likely not going to see Jake Cave make this postseason roster. Instead, Christian Pache... Well, listen. Oh, no! Don't celebrate yet. Christian Pache, Weston Wilson um, will likely make the team. I'm happy with Weston Wilson making the playoff roster. I mean, I think that's a lot of fun, and I think he's got more upside. He can play more positions. I like Weston Wilson a lot. But what was kind of getting to me a little bit is that it doesn't sound like Brandon Marsh is going to start either game against Lizardo or Garrett in games one or two because they're left-handers. And given all the left-handers in the bullpen... I struggle to see exactly how he's going to get into any of these games, these first two games against the Marlins. I know that Marsh hit 221 against left-handers this season. He was not terribly productive against them. He was worth 3.3 wins above replacement as a player this year. And your alternatives are a bottom of the lineup that has Johan Rojas hitting eight and Christian Pache hitting ninth. And Pache would likely be the guy who gets these starts in left field in place of Brandon Marsh against left-handers. Pache is three for his last 33. Um, he, But he would start over Weston Wilson in, in left field, which, again, I can't argue Weston Wilson over Pache. We haven't seen Wilson do much. And Pache is a plus defender. So at the very least, you have great defenders in left and center field which in one-run games, which the Marlins seem to play a lot of, may come in really handy. Maybe being more athletic is a bigger deal than having Brandon Marsh in left field for his bat and the defense that he provides you in left. But, you know, Liz, I, I, I don't love the idea of Brandon Marsh essentially, I think, getting benched in games one and two. I don't, I don't see an avenue for, for him to get a whole lot of playing time in these first two games because I think the Phillies are going to see a vast majority of left-handed pitchers coming at them here in these first two games. What do you make? What do you think about all that? I mean, that's frustrating. I think Marsh deserves a chance to play, but they do seem really committed to this. They seem committed to this. Um, I, I wonder, I mean, I know they have a lot of faith in Pache and they've shown that throughout the year, but I, I'm just not sh- terribly sure why you're committing to a guy who's three for 33 
as opposed to the guy who's been with you all year and worked hard and has had a little bit of luck. I mean, it's for me, it's a it's a coin flip, and I don't know why you wouldn't go with the guy that you that you know well. But you know, it, it's it's frustrating because it does feel like he's not going to get in the games at all, and that that seems unfair. Yeah, and unfair. Uh, I also just I don't anticipate Christian Pache being all that productive, Justin, and I don't know if Brandon Marsh what he would do against some of these guys, but I don't know that he's an automatic out against these guys. And Marsh plays a decent defensive left field. I mean, Pache's a great defender. I don't know in left field that Marsh is all that worse or maybe as good as as Pache in, in left field. I I would I would rather see Brandon Marsh in the lineup, frankly. Yeah, I think I would too. I was rolling this back and forth, uh, but like I, I, I think this isn't like a lost cause or or a miss necessarily by the Phillies. It's how they've pretty much been running this all year. There was a time when Brandon Marsh was hitting lefties better than he was hitting them now. So you know, fair enough. That that, uh, but still, I think overall he is a he is a generally better baseball player. Now Pache has his own strengths. Um, obviously offense isn't really one of them. So I don't even think citing his hitting statistics is even really, cause that's not why he's in there. You don't have to tell the Phillies that he's Pache has struggled at the plate as a baseball player for most of his major league career. So that, that, that aspect of it, I don't think is you know necessarily, I mean, it's definitely part of it, but I think having him out there as a defensive player is going to come up big in a close game. Uh, so I do see there, there is some strength there. Uh, what I don't see is why I should retract my cheering of Jake Cave not being on the roster because of any of this. I feel like that's still a strength <laughs> of this team. I, yeah. for one, am, you know, I, I have, I've had a lot of, you know, a lot of patience for all these guys. I, I, I have. And everybody's struggled at different points. And you just kind of, oh, you know, he'll figure it out. He'll figure it out. KFF has never really been one of those guys. <laughs> Even when the Phillies were at their best, it was eight guys and Jake Cave. In the yeah, Phillies that's offense. pretty much right. Yep. I, for one, am sick to death of watching Jake Cave ground out to second base and hope to God he only gets himself out. And that's the best case scenario. <laughs> so that he is not on the roster, you know, that's that's a that, that is a good thing for, for this Phillies team, for this Phillies lineup. Uh, but yeah, I, I, of course, as a Brandon Marsh guy, I, I would, of course, rather see more Brandon Marsh. But I, I think Marsh is on board with with whatever their plan is, whatever their strategy is here uh, all year with with this plan. So. You know, I, I, I feel like if this is what they're comfortable doing, then do what you're comfortable doing because staying comfortable in the playoffs is is very key. I'm reminded of a time uh, just a couple weeks ago. It was a Sunday game. Mike Schmidt was in the booth, and uh, Marsh came up to somebody in the dugout after they'd done something, and, and um, Tom McCarthy was like, oh, Marsh like that, and Schmidt just goes... <laughs> Marsh likes everything. Great, because all he's just That's smiling great. and hugging people, and you're like, "Yeah, Marsh likes everything." So I don't, you don't have to worry about Marsh. It's more just like, man, I wish he would he would get the opportunities he's earned. Because I think Liz is right; he has worked hard, and he and he does he has earned them. But this is how the Phillies have been playing it all year. And last thing you want to do now is is change things up in in any kind of dramatic way. So if this is yeah. what they want to do, if this is what Topper thinks is the best thing for them, then you know the guys are going to go along with that as well. That's true. That's true. I just, I, I'd like, I think uh, Brandon Marsh is an overall better baseball player than Christian, Christian Pache. And I'd like to see yeah, him in totally the lineup, agree. but, but you know, I, I thought one of the coolest pictures from the night they clinched when Johan Rojas hit the game winning single was Brandon Marsh coming up and just so happy and hugging him and lifting him up in the air. I mean, this is a guy who's taking innings away from him in center field. Like this is a guy who may take his center field job next year and relegate Brandon Marsh to a corner outfielder position or something. I mean, there's no way of knowing exactly what's coming for, for Brandon Marsh in, in 2024 or the Phillies outfield. And so he's just, I think you're right. He's just a guy who seems like to enjoy this team and these games and being alive, just being alive, man, and wet, keeping his hair wet and, and doing his thing, you know? So, um, I, I, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this all goes, but, um, I think it's uh, I think it's an interesting decision that Rob Thompson has in front of him. He's got a number of interesting decisions, including how to work out the bullpen. Um, that's really too much for us to get into right here. But um, I think the one thing we can say about the bullpen is Jose Alvarado, Craig Kimball will alternate the closers role depending on whether the lineup is particularly left-handed heavy or right-handed heavy in the eighth or ninth innings. And then after that, 
I mean, do you guys get the sense that Jeff Hoffman has leaped ahead of Sir Anthony Dominguez right now? I definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. I think Liz? Rob Thompson has certainly gotten comfortable with Jeff Hoffman. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that they would use Chris Sanchez before they used Gregory Soto in a big spot right now? Or Matthew Strom? I'm sorry, you're asking if Sanchez would come before Strom Yeah, or Soto? Soto? Yeah, of those three left-handers, like who who do you think uh, Rob Thompson calls on first? Yeah, go ahead, Liz. I want to see what you say first, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it really depends on the situation because is... Um, is Sanchez going to be in the bullpen throughout the playoffs, or is this just a... Well, certainly just through the first two series. My guess is he would... My guess is he would probably start game four of a playoff series because Taiwan Walker is just way too volatile in the first couple innings of a game. I don't think they can... I don't think they can do that. I don't think they can put him in game four. I think they'd give it to Christian Sanchez. Christopher Sanchez. All right. Yeah, so, all right. So if he's going to be available and actually in the bullpen, then I would say he might go to Sanchez first, but I don't, that does not feel like a, a straight up Thompson move. Cause he does go with what's comfortable first, you yeah, know, which it, would be Soto does, or Strom. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I would say he would probably go to one of them first, but it does depend, you know, if he's feeling particularly daring that night, he's feeling good about the hitters that Sanchez would face. I think he'd put him in cause he does have a lot of trust in him. Justin. Yeah, I think the same, I, I think, well, I think mostly the same. I, I have a hard, I have a hard time believing that, uh, both of those guys would have their roles, uh, taken over by Sanchez, maybe one of them. If I were if I were Rob Thompson, I just, I don't I am not comfortable with Gregory Soto. No, indeed. No, indeed no. I agree. He we're just bleeds base good. runners at this point. So I, I would say definitely him. And Strom, you know, Strom has certainly run into his share of trouble as well. Uh but if you're gonna pick one of those guys, I would say I'm putting Sanchez in there before Soto, at least for now. Like it's a, but that's the thing. With with Topper Soto's definitely going to get yes, an he is. somewhere. Yes, he, he is. will. He will get his somewhere. So he will yep. find his space for him because he he always does for like his guys. Uh, not you know not necessarily like oh you're a veteran player you're definitely in not like his predecessor but still he's he he is a player's manager because of because of loyalty and because of sticking to guys like like that. So I expect to see Soto in an uncomfortable spot, but that's just because every spot Soto is in is an uncomfortable spot. All right, well, let's get on to uh, one last thing before we wrap up the podcast here, just kind of getting away from the the Phillies and the Marlins playoff series. Just a a couple of managerial changes that we wanted to mention, having some Phillies ties to them. Uh, A very surprising announcement that the San Francisco Giants uh, had fired Gabe Kapler. Gabe Kapler, just a couple of years removed from manager of the year, 107 wins with the Giants, took a team that really had no discernible talent on it and kept them in the wildcard race for much of the season. And yet, it seems like the move makes sense because it doesn't seem like anybody in San Francisco actually liked the guy. And... I don't know what the baseball reasons are, but some of them, you know, just some of the reporting is that this was not a clubhouse that really gelled, that was kind of, you know, there wasn't a strong authoritarian hand, which of course we remember from Kapler's time here. And um, so kind of a surprising move there. And also we found out just before game time uh, with the Phillies and Mets that Mets manager Buck Showalter would not be returning in 2024 on the last year of his deal, come to find out, fired by Steve Cohen after their disappointing season. And so um, just kind of let's talk about these two guys real quick here. Justin, let's uh, talk Buck Showalter first, because obviously in the National League East, this affects the Phillies more. A weird way that all of this news was broken today by Buck Showalter and the Mets. Yeah, so that was a uh, pretty messy but I guess kind of Metsy way of, uh, of of a manager explaining to reporters that he's been let go. It was a very emotional press conference. I don't think it was particularly clear what was happening, uh, even at first when when he uh, was reading from a piece of paper. He said things like, you know, there's a lot of things I could say, which is always an indicator of some kind of behind-the-curtain drama or at least events that we may never be aware of that went into this decision. Uh, I, I'm not – it's not that I'm – totally thrown off by the idea of Buck Showalter not being the Mets manager anymore with them bringing in David Stearns and 
and uh, I, 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 with the logic dictating that a guy in, as the new president of baseball ops is going to want to bring in his own manager eventually. But Showalter's been there two years, right? Two seasons. He, he came in ahead yeah, of 2022. That's a shockingly small amount of time to give a guy, especially a Buck Showalter, like veteran manager, known entity in baseball, uh, to, to, to you know work his magic to lead a team. So it was, of these two firings, this one certainly felt a little more surprising in that I didn't expect it to happen so soon, and I didn't expect it to happen in the way that it did. Uh, with him kind of hinting at uh, various goings-on within the Mets organization. So this was kind of a messy end to a strange era of Mets baseball. I I can't really remember a time that a team was given so much funding funding and uh, uh, backing just like by the media and and by just generally – people saying oh this team's going to be really good this team is setting itself up to be this you know enter this new era of success and by july they're not that team anymore and by september or october they're firing the manager who was supposed to oversee that era i mean it's just it is it is jarring as i assume it is for mets fans so that was a that was a strange and kind of sad press conference watching that go down the Mets kind of painted themselves in, into a corner when they couldn't convince David Stearns to join them when they wanted him to because they recognized that they needed new leadership because uh, I think they told they they had Sandy Alderson leave uh, after this past season or the season before that. Um, and they didn't necessarily have anyone to replace him because they wanted David Stearns specifically. And so they have a manager but they still don't have like someone to guide their baseball department and so they just sort of painted themselves into this corner where they needed to hire they want to hire this guy but they know he's going to want his own guys in the end and that's what's going to happen that's exactly what happened you know and I wish I could feel bad but it's all so hilarious to me just so funny (laughs) that they just like there were the vibes were impeccable up until the moment that Edwin Diaz tore his patellar tendon in two just by celebrating on the mound during the World Baseball Classic. And from that moment on, yeah. that was it. That it was over. There there was no hope for them. They spent two days in first place all season, and it was game one and game four out of 162. Well, I mean, yeah, it's the expectations. I mean, if there's any other manager, the expectations from what you entered the season with to how you finished, you could understand a decision being made like this. But I, I think your point, Liz, hits hits the nail on the head that if they want to bring in a new general manager, or they got a new general manager and, and you know, they he wants his own guy, you know, and this was part of the weirdness with that we're kind of seeing with San Francisco, too, is the general manager there is keeping his job while Gabe Kapler gets fired. Deja vu for Kapler because the same thing happened with Matt Clintac. And then one year later, Matt Clintac gets fired by John Middleton. And so um, where do the Mets go from here? I mean, I, I keep hearing them saying, like, they're going to take a step back in 2024. Like, maybe that's smart. They have some big decisions to make with with some of their players. But um, it was very unexpected. I really – it was assumed that Walter would be back for his final year last year. But, uh, you know, it's – he's also one of the elderly managers in this game that I think is maybe the game is – potentially passing him by a little bit just just in terms of relating to the players in the analytics era and all that kind of stuff you know he he might be a little bit of a relic at this point and for there was something about him and his message that didn't resonate and this comes a year after all those articles talking about how buck schwalter doesn't miss a detail and he gets everything done and blah 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 blah. you know it just how much does the manager really do and that's what we keep coming back to a lot of times with these guys (laughs) if Um, you want to look at san francisco he does quite a lot we could tell. And that's the other thing. Yeah. He did too much. And that was one of the reasons why Gabe Kapler got let go was because people were just sick. And we were sick of the manager being the face of the franchise. It was just, it was everything you hear about from Giants fans and people who cover the team. They were an abomination to watch. They were no fun to watch. Like mm, starting pitchers, familiar. he had bullpen. Oh, openers three out of every five days. You're pinch hitting for guys in the fourth inning. There's never a set lineup. I mean, analytically speaking, Gabe Kapler is probably doing the right thing with what he's got, but it was 
It was a misery to watch that team play baseball. And I think the the late season, another September collapse, really is what gave them the excuse to to let him go. Well, when you think the most exciting and intriguing part of baseball is matchups, you're not going to be cultivating an environment of very watchable baseball. Um, I, In a way, I was a little surprised by this as well, because this is what you should expect from hiring Gabe Kapler. I mean, yeah. <laughs> is this not why you hire Gabe Kapler? Because you're on board with this. Yeah, he was a first-time manager in Philadelphia, but you certainly got a sense of his managing style. I mean, it was distinct, to put it lightly. So they certainly knew what they were getting into as far as like what the Gabe Kapler managing experience was going to be. If that's not what they wanted, then... I don't Why'd know, you hire him? Pl- planned wrong, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I, maybe I don't know. Maybe there'll be another article that a feature that will come out talking about how well the fans in San Francisco just didn't get what he was going for, and they ran him out of town because they're too dumb to understand the Gabe Kapler managing style. I assume. I assume that's going to be the case for every city. Well, I read <laughs> something recently, actually, that uh, I'm trying to remember where it was, and I'll see if I can dig it up and put it on Twitter tomorrow. Um, but I read that one of the big issues was San Francisco necessarily some of the players not giving their all and part of the issue was Kapler continues to believe that it's best for the players to police their own their own clubhouse when it's clear that they need something different you know because Rob Thompson lets the players do their own thing, but he does have a firm hand in places. And that seems to be what Kapler's missing because the same thing happened in Philadelphia. Players just had, they just had enough of him. And uh, that is what I believe happened. The uh, no one really, everyone hated him. I feel like Kapler and Thompson probably overlap on the idea that, well, you go, you let the clubhouse police itself, blah, blah, blah. But I think in Kapler's case, it's less about being a player's manager and more about just being like, I don't want to do that part of the job. Yeah. So I will just focus on the matchups. I will focus <laughs> on how many pitchers are in my bullpen. I will focus on who has pitched where. I will focus on who got a hit in these weather conditions last year against this pitcher specifically and fill the lineup with as many as those guys as I can. Uh, and then what's that shouting from the clubhouse? There's some kind of, I'll just well, go and close here's my the door thing. here and I won't have to deal with that. The, the, the argument was that he didn't treat his players like people. You know what I mean? Like not that he wasn't, he, like he, he would he would speak to players one on one, but he never would, would speak to the you know players as a group. So there was never like a group message that everybody was kind of <laughs> a part kidding? of. And, and, I'm, sorry, and I'm just I'm just imagining a bunch of laptops on chairs, with yeah. spreadsheets open, and he's trying to give them a pep talk. <laughs> that's what he's like, skip, But that's the skip argument. the game like, starting. <laughs> like he didn't. You don't when you when you are strictly looking at only matchups and what the numbers are telling you. You you don't take into account. And this is you know what makes Topper different is like you you don't take into account well. You know, you signed Mitch Hanniger to this free agent deal and he had like one bad month to start the season and now he only gets to play like two days a week. You signed him to a four-year, $59 million deal and you're basically telling him now you're a part-time player because you didn't play well for one week. Like that doesn't sit well with with, yeah. with players and, and incoming free agents. But if you're looking at the data... Yeah, maybe you're right, but you know, you've also you've also got human beings in here playing this game and if if you're if you're only looking at the raw data, you're you're you may be able to bleed out every run and every win that you can, but it's going to be miserable and if it's not amazing, you're not going to last very long. I don't know if you can't make a guy who relies solely on data work in San Francisco. I'm not sure if that's <laughs> going to work anywhere. It's not. It'd yeah, be I'm, interesting to see if he gets another gig somewhere. It really will be considering everything that we've seen the article that i was reading i think it was by andrew baggerly and it was about whether or not san francisco has damaged its reputation as a haven for free agent pitchers. yes um, i read the same thing yes and uh the conclusion i believe was uh yes between the it, yeah. between everything that happened in the preseason with Carlos Correa, them not making any big moves, I believe they lost their pitching coach. I believe Brian is that ba- Brian Bannister. 
I believe it's yeah i think he left too yep mm -hmm. and that's who the everyone was coming to to be with because they had become known san francisco has become known as a place where pitchers could come in their late career and revive themselves i mean it started with brian you know ryan vogel song ages and ages ago yeah uh, and so they've they've definitely de uh really harmed their <laughs> reputation after all this because they they seem like a clown show <laughs> kind of after yeah. all this yeah yeah weird weird things going on in san francisco not none of it's surprising none of it's surprising um i am kind of surprised they fired him they didn't even wait till the season was over um unlike john middleton who took like two and a half three weeks to figure out if he wanted to do it they even did oh, he, he went on God a little remember that. road trip didn't he? right yeah <laughs> and this and here in san francisco they're like they can't even wait till the season's over to unload gabe kapler so i that will be very very curious I was going to say, that must have been to send a message to either the, the current I mean, players or something. It yeah. had to have been send a message like, we get it. This guy was not the answer. We're moving on. Let me let me ask you guys a real quick question. Yes or no? Does Gabe Kapler get another managerial job within the next five years? No. Yes. Yeah. Justin. Okay. I think he does. I think he does, yeah. too. Um what does but, he have? What's his resume? Like, what does I he have to say? Like, you well, should hire me for this. He's been. He's a. Isn't he a two-time manager of the year award winner or one-time manager of the year award? He won it once. Not and, really. Phillies. <laughs> yeah, but no, I know. I agree with you. No postseason. No postseason success at all. But he does have a 107 win season under his belt and a manager of the year award. And there will be people out there who will look at the roster the Giants put out there, and will say. This guy had them in the playoff hunt until the last three weeks of the season and give him that's, the credit for that. That's what his Wikipedia page is going to say. Of I course it is. You that. Yes. But there will be some general managers out there, I think, who will say that. Maybe not right away, but, you know, there. I think somebody will take the Gabe Kapler plunge again. I do. I don't think it'll be a guy like who is uh, Dave Dombrowski's experience or stature. Like any team that has a guy at that level – uh, as a president of baseball ops or as a GM, I don't think they're going to wade into those waters. It would have to be like younger looking to prove themselves like kind of the same position the Phillies were in when they brought him in where they were like, let's, let's really define this era. Let's, let's, let's shake things up. Let's bring in a, a true innovator. You know, all the stuff you'd hear from a weekend seminar of like C-level tech executives talking to each other <laughs> like that, that level of rhetoric, <laughs> Whatever clubhouse or whatever organization in which that level of rhetoric is occurring, that's the most likely place for him to get hired. But I say no instinctively because I just, yeah, the 107 win season, fine. But, like, there's a lot of managerial candidates out there. There, there really are. And, I mean, why would you automatically put this guy on a list because he's managed two teams for the most part unsuccessfully for, for reasons that are blatantly obvious to everyone. It must have driven him nuts to have Bryce Harper a superstar of that level in his locker room, a guy he had to play every day and couldn't say, well, the matchups didn't really blah, 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 because everyone <laughs> fans to the ownership would have been furious that he's not starting this guy. So knowing that that's what he brings to a season, what, where do you see him go? Like I, he's got to land somewhere like the, the, the Royals or something where like whatever he does, isn't going to matter anyway, because nobody's watching and the team's way down in the hole. I I'll bet you the Rockies would give him a try. Oh, Rockies. Right. There you go. <laughs> and I was thinking if he wants to move back into the executive level, he could certainly do that pretty easily. Now that yeah, he has actual too. player level experience, I bet he could yeah. he could spin that into a pretty a pretty cushy job. Not that he wants something where he does nothing, but he could get a cushy job and just annoy everybody in his entire department. Yep. I think that's uh, either way. No matter what he does, he's going to annoy people. So um, it's just a matter of where he does that. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's yeah. just that was overly mean. I, no, I apologize. It's true. But Stop I, it. it. Don't was, apologize. Don't it's, you dare. It's kind of true. Don't take it's it kind of true. All right. Let's wrap up this fine edition of the podcast. Your Phillies playoff preview here for 2023. I'm not even going to ask you guys for predictions. We're all going to pick the Phillies to beat the Marlins uh, in yeah. this series. And so um, we will just we will go forth and, and conquer these fish. Uh, let's get some final thoughts from you guys before we wrap up. Uh, Justin, final thoughts. 
Uh, first thing is there's going to be a ton of postseason coverage on Baseball Prospectus, so uh, stay tuned there uh, for me and all my colleagues over there covering the postseason as it happens. Uh, the other thing is when the Phillies clinched and they were all celebrating and everybody had their hats and their shirts on and they were running around, and I saw a, a quick glimpse of John Middleton down there wearing a hat and a shirt, and I was like, oh, yeah, you know what's nice? I haven't thought about John Middleton in weeks until I saw him down there. And I was like, that's the way it ought to be. You know, yes. you want give him credit for, for, for doing you know what he's done to set this team up. Absolutely. And we have. We have given him credit for that. Uh, and then, you know what he did next? Disappear. Just got out of the way. That is, yep. that that's is a good exactly. Owner. That's, a, that's what you want to see from an owner. So, hey, you know what? Way to go. That's uh, yep. That's something we complained about for years. And here it is happening. So credit where credit's due. I think that's fair. I think that's a good that's a good bouquet to throw John Middleton's way for sure. Uh, Liz, final thoughts. I want to thank all of you listeners out there for making this such a great regular season. That's my only final thought. Yeah, it's already over. I know. Crazy. I was, you know, you look back at time and it always feels like it passes quickly. But like this season especially was, it passed in a flash. You know, I really did mean it when I feel like I've forgotten more about this team than I've known about many other teams. This has been like such a fun and entertaining year and being with WHYY and Billy Penn has been an absolute joy uh, and welcoming so many more new listeners uh, to our listenership has been great. So thank you all for listening and we can't wait to bring you the best the the best postseason coverage in the business. That's right. That's right. We're going to have we're going to have you for however long this thing goes and we hope it's as long a journey as last year's was. Uh we will be uh, taking you through this every step of the way to celebrate the victories and to commiserate over what we hope will be just a, a scant few losses just sprinkled in here and there like we saw in 2022. And I want to echo um our thanks to to you guys for coming back every every you know three times a week for these uh, hit and season podcasts and for WHYY and Billy Penn and all of our new friends there as well. It's been a real fun year. Um, can't believe it's already over. Six months flies right on by. But uh, now we have what we hope will be the most exciting month of the 2023 season. Red October coming back to Citizens Bank Park. And it all gets underway on Tuesday night at CBP starting at 8 p.m. Eastern time. You'll have Zach Wheeler going up against Jesus Lazardo. Should be a very good, very fun series between these two division rivals. And uh, hopefully the Phillies will wrap this thing up in two quickies like they did last year and get ready to take on the Atlanta Braves. But do not want to put the cart before the horse. Got to take care of these pesky Marlins who have had our number in recent years. Let them get introduced to what Red October is in Philadelphia at Citizens Park is really like. Let's give them three and a half hours of hell this year, too. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of Hit and Season. My thanks to Justin and Liz. And hey, folks, make sure you're checking out everything we got going on over at Billy Penn. Our landing page is billypenn.com slash hit and season. And of course, we've got the bonus podcast for you over there at our Hit and Season Patreon, where if you sign up on one of the tiers, uh, throw a little cash our way, you get some uh, bonus material for your trouble. So go to uh, it's patreon.com slash hitting season over there thanks everybody for tuning in we will talk to you later this week coming up here on hitting season